If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh, Miss Stu. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks for having me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do that every time. I should set it up like you're a guest and you're like, thank you so much for coming back on. You really show up like every week. Like you just like pop in here. <laughs> <laughs> the same goddamn guest each week the same one same one i was like guys she just like won't leave the party no i'm so excited to be back on and this is an interesting episode because like we were just talking about i covered this on the sinister and i thought to myself i was like because you haven't listened to it yet which i was like thank god but i was like i really want to tell this story for Stu. but i did have like my written out research for that that i did like obviously for the sinister but i was like i wonder how much of it I have retained and how much I could just like relay back to you from memory. Cause true crime has really helped my memory. Also, sorry, anybody's listening. My voice is a little rough right now. <laughs> it's a little, a little B Arthur. <laughs> it's a little, um, it's a little Luann, honestly, who has a deeper it's voice, a li- Luann or Erica Jane? A Luann. Luann. When they, call, when they call her Lou man. I know it's cruel. It's so cruel. cruel. Just be cool. Don't be all uncool. My favorite is... Wait, have you seen the, that episode yet? No, I haven't. I'm on season seven, though. Yeah, this is Real Housewives. Seven. Roni. Real Housewives of New York. Roni. That is definitely the best <laughs> season, by far, in my opinion. But truly, when she does the don't be all uncool thing, when they start <laughs> revealing why, think, why she's being uncool, like Luann's ability to rationalize poor behavior is like one of the funniest things to me she's crazy i mean my sister is <laughs> i literally told my sister last night because my sister is plowing through these seasons she was like what episode are you and i'm like season seven <laughs> ep three and she's like i'm at the reunion for season eight she started season seven like mid last week dead like she's flying through them anyway so welcome back everybody <laughs> let's get into some true crime <laughs> Thank you again for stopping by Creep Time, the podcast. We are your hosts, Silas Dean and Stu. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you for following, subscribing to the podcast. But please don't forget before we get into it to turn on the bell notification, leave us a review, and tell your friends, your family, and the folks at home about Creep Time, the podcast. 
But as I was mentioning before, I want to test my true crime memory on this because I really think I can tell you this story without having to reference notes. I think I remember it that well. Do you know anything about Austin Harif and the what they call the frat boy cannibal? All I know is when I saw you posted something about the frat boy cannibal, mm-hmm. I, having been in Greek life in college, I was like, girl, what? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I You're like, a sorority sister. Yeah, sometimes I You're I like forget. Kappa Delta Phi. I don't, I don't even know what they are. <laughs> uh, Delta, Delta, Delta. Is, it re- is that really yeah. one? Of, that's not really that's, one of them, is it? Yes, that's what I was in. Delta, Delta, Delta. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Delta, Delta, Delta. <laughs> <laughs> so Trial. weird. That's what my Delta flight attendants always say to me, too. <laughs> oh, God. So, let's see. Now, before I get into the story, because I am going to try to rattle it off from memory, I just want to warn everybody, because we do this before, you know, every sort of gruesome case, but this is a particularly gruesome case. I know we did a gruesome one last week, but just a fair warning. And I think that comes with the territory of saying, frat boy, cannibal. But really, this story, and I said this before, it's more of a deep dive, I would say, into unchecked mental illness. It Mm. so intensely, and we'll go through this, reminded me of the Bryceless Pisa case. Like, a family kind of in denial that something was going very wrong until it was too late. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And you know what? Do I want to send you pictures? I could send you pictures, but they're pretty... I'll I'll decide in a bit. They're pretty gruesome, so I'll see who got the stomach halfway through. Listen, I'm still on the Mary Vincent ride right now. So wasn't if you that crazy? Do it, that was a wild <laughs> case that I just threw if, your way. Oh my god! I really have not stopped thinking about that photo of her. That's terrifying. The yeah. whole story—it's just so, so chilling for me to think about a hitchhiking story gone wrong. I hate that concept. Oh God, me too. And you know what? I will say one more thing because I did see online none of the creepers, but like I saw, I think on. I'd have been Facebook or something, some criticism of her. And it was a lot of like victim blaming, blaming and people saying, you know, like, well, this is what you get if you hitchhike. Like, this is what happens if you like, you're alone with a stranger. And it's like, give me a break. 15 years old, the 70s. Like, the 70s. And, and regardless of like the context of how young she was or how aloof she might have been, you never put the blame on the person who has been harmed. That's just insane to me. So, don't <laughs> I, not, I don't mean to be blaming the creepers because it's fully not them at all. But like, don't ever do that. <laughs> well, I don't care if she's a you know drunken buffoon that gets decides to hitchhike. It doesn't yes, matter what he did to her was doesn't. inhumane and cruel. Exactly. So I'll get off my soapbox. But that was the one thing that just like pissed me off. Usually, like anything that's like written about online, I just I don't really check it. I don't really read through like comments like that. But I caught this, and it just really irritated me. So I'm gonna love to see what they say about this one. <clears throat> so, the story of Austin Harif. Now, let's see what I remember. Austin Harif. He was born December 21st in 1996, and he grew up in. Palm Beach, Florida. Are you familiar with Palm Beach? Oh, so he's rich, rich. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I didn't, I I guess I kind of knew that, but like when I was doing the research, I was like, oh, people are saying Palm Beach is like the Hamptons of Florida. Like that's like where wealthy kids grow up. Well, 
speaking of the real housewives of new york i mean that's like one of their that's like where they fly down to in the winter time because it really Ramona is like say that yeah yeah it's like the hamptons of you know the the south florida. i guess the Ham- florida yeah, where the snowbirds go yeah so he grew up there i think his father was a dentist and his mother also worked he had two working parents and what was really sticking out to me when i researched the story was just how i guess normal his life was like there was really nothing in there that could suggest that he like came from a difficult home life. I, I know his parents did get divorced when he was 13 and it was him and his sister, but it sounds like they adjusted really well. Like they were both pretty well acclimated to um, the split custody between their parents because they stayed with their mom. Their father moved out, but he didn't move very far and he was still very much a part of their lives. So that that didn't really add up to me as to at least not to explain this tipping point. So Austin, he gets to high school and he's actually described as like an exceptional student, like straight A student. He's a student athlete. He's pretty big for his age. He's about six feet tall, 200 pounds. So I'll give you one guess what he played in high school. Football. As all the frat boys do. (laughs) He played football for all four years. And I think maybe for one or two of those years, he also wrestled, but football was his main go-to. And he also had this huge passion for helping people. He had talked about that in high school a lot where he's like, I really want to get into a career where I can like help as many people as I can. So eventually, by the time he's a senior, he settles on medicine. So he's very fortunate because he gets into FSU, into the pre-med program, and he had the grades to get in. I mean, he was going to do very, very well. So he transitions into college. And from his freshman year, it would seem that he's like, really killing it like he's doing a phenomenal job his he has straight a's he has a girlfriend it seems like he's got his life together even as a freshman and he's on um i know he's on the pre-med track but i think let me look this up because i think he was in exercise science was his initial major okay yeah um and he also joined a frat while he was there i'm trying to think of the name of the frat could have been delta 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 i'm like i could list off five off the top of my head Hold on, there's an ambulance that's soaring by right now. Give me a second. <laughs> Let's see. Like Sigma Chi. Uh, <laughs> just, oh God. Phi Gam. Phi Delt. What did, I was like, what'd you call me? <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Where is it? Where is it? Well, y'all get the picture. You see, I was like, I'm going to test my memory. And of course, I forget the actual frat he was in. But that's kind of inconsequential to the story i would say but he is in a fraternity he's excelling grades wise he has a girlfriend things are looking up and his parents perceive that as well they're like wow austin has acclimated like exceptionally well to college he's on the right track what they didn't know was that underneath the surface he was falling apart so austin was extremely isolated and they would learn this later because after all of this goes down And the police eventually sees his computer. And I think some of his journals, they find all these journal entries and computer searches where they're like, oh, this kid is, he was going through it. He just felt very isolated. He felt like he couldn't break out of his shell. He couldn't talk to people. He couldn't connect with people. And these huge, like long journal entries talking about these like deep feelings of depression and loneliness. But what really became concerning were his computer searches. He was searching things like, am I crazy? How do you know if you're crazy? 
Could I be crazy? Am I a dog? Do I need to sleep? Like he's, it's almost this, I was talking about this in the podcast. It's like this weird tipping point, the sinister, um, this weird tipping point where you're kind of losing the plot as you would say, Mm -hmm. but you're almost like partially self-aware as you're going down. Yeah. That's what it read as. It's like you're right on the cusp of like, if you're going to have a psychotic break and like, there's still a part of your brain that's like, hold on, hold on. Like, I I know that this isn't, this isn't right. Like your body, like the mind body connection is almost like still right there. Totally. And you know, it's, it's described throughout the story that he does have a lot of moments where he seems very lucid, very calm, and at least self-aware that like he might have a problem. So to me, it seems like he has episodes, like psychotic episodes, but Mm -hmm. we'll get a little bit into it in a bit. So that's what's going on behind the scenes that nobody knows about yet. But really, this all kind of kicks off when Austin finally goes home for college. One more thing before I talk about his home life that summer after his first year. His first year in college, he was experimenting, of course, with drinking. He was taking harder drugs. But one drug in particular I want to call attention to, Vivance. If you Mm. remember the Bryceless Pisa case, he was also experimenting with Vivance and drinking before he had his psychotic break. Sorry, remind me what year. We're in 1990. No, no, no. No, no, no. This is like 2015. He was born in 96. Yeah, yeah. This is like 2015. I I always do that. Okay. He was born. (laughs) It's going to get more and more out of pocket. You're going to be like, so, okay, 1840 what? (laughs) We were in. (laughs) And they found what on his Dell? (laughs) Are you joking? I'm like, everybody was doing Vivance back in the 1800s. I, I knew that it had to have been like, because. I was in, well, we both were in college around 2015. And I know Vivance mm-hmm. was like all the rage. Not that I was You said partaking. that. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, maybe I was just very like insulated, but I don't remember. I had never even heard of Vivance ever. I, I remember it being a big, because it's like basically stronger Adderall. Stronger Adderall. Yeah. As if Adderall wasn't enough. I know. I know. Or maybe it's not even stronger Adderall, but maybe it's um, like it, the time release on it is longer. So you mm-hmm. feel that jittery feeling like your heart rate is elevated uh, and you're more like awake or whatever longer. Well, I, I don't think. I don't want to blame it. But like now that I've seen it as a consistent pillar of these two cases where like very young men in their first years in college slip, like mm-hmm. slipped into a psychotic state. I don't want to blame Vivance, but it's it's an odd like consistency that I'm seeing. Yeah. Well, I think that it's from what I remember in college, like people that would have a problem with it. It's that first of all, your like your body and your mind is still so like malleable and young then. But like second of all, when you're coupling something that is like an upper like that with alcohol, which right. is a downer, I mean your your body's like, what in the world's going on with me right now? I know. You make a good point. Oh my God, my nose is so stuffed. Jesus, hold on. <laughs> I'm so sorry, y'all. Also, I'm like oh. barely holding this travel mic up. Oh my God. <laughs> we really need some sort of like strap for them. We need some sort of like little thing you put around your neck. <laughs> if you could see me, I look like SpongeBob oh. when he has the suds right now. Like that's no. my vibe. That's my oh. vibe, baby. I've got baby. one eyeball rolling out of my skull. <laughs> oh my so... 
Yes, he was taking Vyvanse. He was experimenting with harder drugs. I believe he was taking other like really hard drugs too, like psychedelics and stuff. Um, but basically, this all comes to a peak when he finally heads home for the summer. That's when everybody gets clued in to like just how far down Austin has gone. So he comes home and immediately like his whole family they feel like something's very off with him like his personality seems to be very different and like the way he's speaking isn't normal for him but really it all comes together on that first night because in the middle of the night austin took his mattress and moved it downstairs to the garage middle of the night what? and then like every everybody woke up because obviously he's making a ton of noise and they're like what are you doing And he's like i'm moving my mattress to the garage because there are demons that are coming to this house and I have to protect you because they're coming through the garage. And they were like, what is going on? Like him and his sister, the mother, they're like, what is going on? And then he he spent the whole rest of the night patrolling the hallway, like going back and forth and like knocking on their doors and saying, I'm still keeping watch. The demons have not come yet. Like announcing that he's watching over them. They were so scared. They locked their doors all night wouldn't you like again this is the Bryceless Pisa effect where I'm like okay extremely abnormal behavior would you not call 911 I'm gonna tell you something that this might sound really weird and creepers bear with me there is a phenomenon we're barren barren. (laughs) there's a phenomenon that I think happens sometimes in the south with young men where because I've seen this with people that I know, unfortunately, where people, young men in the South, like at this specific age, start to, especially those that are like privileged, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. start to have a really awful bout of like mental illness or like it's a, this weird phenomenon. And I've talked about it with my friends that, and, and so I wonder if it goes unchecked because in the South, there's this kind of, you know, feeling of not acknowledging things that are really kind of uncomfortable or difficult or like there's kind of a, you know, they'll get over it. They'll, he's just figuring it out. He's, he's going through it, you know, but at Um, surface level, you're like, no, that's extremely abnormal and dangerous behavior. We're like, they're not aware of what they're saying. Totally. You're so, so right about that. I think that's exactly what was happening because actually his family when they do kind of come to a consensus, they're like, okay, something's wrong with Austin. Not even for a second, which is so interesting. Do they think it's mental illness? Mm-hmm. They're like, he's on drugs. Mm-hmm. He's smoking the wacky tobacco. They didn't yeah. say that, but <laughs> something we can add to the Nancy Grace glossary, the wacky tobacco. The wacky tobacco. So that whole episode happens in the home that night. We're like, They've locked their doors because they're like freaked out by Austin. And I guess this, I was kind of unclear about this, but it sounded like it went on for a little bit, like for like days to weeks where he was exhibiting like odd behavior and then he seemed lucid and then he seemed odd and they confronted him right away and they were like, are you on something? And of course, like throughout the school year, he had been taking a lot of drugs. He was like, yes, I'm taking psychedelics. I've been like smoking weed. I've been taking Vyvanse and drinking. So again, that pushes this whole thing even further to the outskirts of them being like, he could have a mental illness. They're like, okay, you're clearly on drugs and we're going to get you straight. Like, we're going to make sure that you're off everything. So you have to promise to us, like, you're going to get clean. Which, 
was really to his detriment because anytime he had a slip up, let's say, or like an episode, they just assumed he was using. And that wasn't the case. Hmm. When, when this all goes down, actually, and they finally do a talk screen, Stu, he was sober. <sighs> That's what's chilling about it. So all of this is happening. This goes on for quite some time. And eventually the problem of Austin gets so bad that his family has an internal meeting and they decide they're going to enact something called the Baker Law. Have you heard of that? I have not. This is basically the equivalent, I think, in Florida of a 5150, where they're going to have him involuntarily committed for a 72-hour psych hold so he mm-hmm. can be evaluated because they've started to come around to the idea that whether he's using or he's not, clearly something is like deeply wrong with him that's making him act this way or making him use drugs this way. So... We need to have him committed because he could be dangerous. It's very interesting to me that they came to this consensus. It was so tragically just about a day or two too late. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Where this all happens. So I'm then going to focus on one specific day where all of this comes to a peak. Before I do, how you doing so far? I'm just, I'm feeling so, this really does, I'm telling you, like, strike a, something in me because i have watched so many young men in the south that have had mental illness like bouts and unfortunately either take their lives prematurely or turn to drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and od or something of the like but i'm scared because i know that cannibalism is involved here it's uh, i mean yeah it's it's going to be really, really difficult to get through. And it's going to happen very fast, I would say. But I think you're very right. Do you feel like you often see that with young men who are just entering college? I feel like that is the tipping point. Yes. Yes. Yep. I've seen that multiple times, actually. Um, It's really sad. Sorry, I'm just taking a big swig of water. Take that swig. I'm going to need it before we get into this. So this day, with Austin. So Austin gets up pretty early in this day and he actually leaves his home and he goes out on foot to a friend's house nearby. Like cold knocks on the door. His friend answers the door to his home and Austin goes, what year was I born? And his friend is like, what? (laughs) And he goes, what year was I born? His friend is like, you were born in 1996. Are you, are you good? Are you okay? Austin just turns around, walks away, like leaves the house. So his friend immediately calls him and he's like, hey, can you come back here? Like, how about you hang out with me for today? And he's basically trying to be a good friend, but like not going far enough where he's like, I just want to keep an eye on him today because he seems like he's a little out of it. And I just want to watch him. So he's like, how about you hang out with me for today? We'll have a beach day. We can call some people. So that's what they do. They end up going to the beach in Florida. They invite some of their friends. I believe Austin's sister also came. And again, she has all the prior knowledge and context of like what's been going on the whole summer with him. So they get to the beach and immediately Austin is like, 
oh, I have to leave for a second and run home. I'm going to come back. He goes home. He changes his outfit. He wears a very long, heavy, like football jersey, long, thick sweatpants. He wears thick sunglasses and two wristwatches and then comes back. And everybody who sees him, they're kind of like uncomfortably nervous because they're like, dude, it's hot as hell outside. Like, what? Are you, why are you wearing this? Like, why did you right. leave to go change into this? And they're kind of like snickering and laughing. He snaps on them. And he's like, if any of you tell me that I'm crazy, I'm going to effing kill all of you. <gasps> like snaps on the whole group. And they're like, okay, okay, let's calm down. Chill out. They're a little like freaked out by him. But then again, he seems to snack back into it. And he's like, he goes from like zero to 60 and then back to zero so quick where he's like, Bark, 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 shout at people. And then he's like, I'm cool. I'm chill. What's up? But then his sister approached him and she was like, Austin, like, are you like good? And he turns to her and he goes, did you know that I'm half horse? Did you know that I'm, I'm half dog? And I'm immortal. And she's very point blank with him. But again, this is, I don't understand why they keep, they're hearing these things and they're like, pacifying the situation. I was like ranting about this on The Sinister where I'm like, if someone is saying this to you, they're clearly not well. This is probably beyond like your 5150 that's going to come in like two days or something. They probably need to go to the ER that night. Well, yeah, especially as a sister, you know this person. (laughs) Well, she she actually says to him, she's like, Austin, listen to me. The things you're saying right now, she was like, I think you need to get help and you need to talk to somebody. And again, he snaps back into this like lucid state where he's like, yeah, no, I think you're right. He's like, I think I I do need to probably talk to somebody because something's like going on with me. And again, they're still not even clear if this is like in his head or he's on something. In fact, Mm -hmm. I think his parents still think he's on something. So then after this incident, The sister, I think Austin's girlfriend, and then one of Austin's guy friends, they're all going to walk to this restaurant called Duffy's because they're meeting up with, I think, his father and either his father's girlfriend or like his father's stepmother. I have to say, I have no notes in front of me and it is coming back to me in full force right now. I can't believe you don't have any notes. I feel like this is incredible. It's crazy. My memory. I'm really like, I'm really testing it right now. So They walk to Duffy's, right? But not before an incident happens on the street. So while they're walking, Austin is like kind of on the outside of the friend group, like closest to the street on the sidewalk. And he turns to his sister and he's like, I have to test my immortality. Runs into (gasps) traffic. And luckily, she runs out and grabs him, pulls him back before he actually kills himself. And she's like, Austin, like you can't run into the street like that kind of thing. But again, there was like a lack of seriousness to the whole thing because even though he just did that, they're still in pursuit of going to Duffy's. Like it's there's no detour to be like, you've got to go to the ER. We got to call mom and dad. They're like, we're going to dinner. <laughs> we're going to a sit down dinner. So then they get to the restaurant, right? And the restaurant is really interesting because the whole time that he's in there, everything is caught on camera. In fact, maybe this is a good time to send you a picture. Do you want a picture? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Let me first send you a picture of Austin, I guess, before all of this went down. I'll send you a football pic of him. How you doing? How's everything going? I, I, I almost feel like it's like a lack of maturity as well that they're just like continuing to go to, you know, like when you're in college and 
you could be dealing with someone like in your friend group that's just being a total ass, but you're just like, okay, we'll let them do their thing. Yeah, like you're almost not even sure. You're like, okay, are they just doing this because they want attention? Or right, like, right, like, is this right. his personality? Like something about it. And I know I can look at it from a bird's eye view and I can be like, this seems extremely odd. Like how could they allow this behavior to go on unchecked? But I wasn't there. I don't know their family dynamic. And for yeah. them, they could have seen him in a very different light. But reading the story in black and white, I was like, this seems pretty shocking to me. Oh, God. These photos. He looks like such a normal kid. He really was. And, you know, I mean, it's devastating to, like, hear him speak now because he's given interviews. And, of course, he's... I'll, I'll, I won't give too much away. I'll keep going on the story. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, finally... They get to Duffy's, right? They meet with the dad. Everybody's there, the girlfriend, the sister, whatnot. They sit down at the table. Almost immediately, Austin gets up and he excuses himself like he has to go to the bathroom. But he doesn't go to the bathroom. We see on the cameras, he actually leaves the restaurant and then he comes back in immediately and then sits down again. But then just a few minutes later, I think like three minutes later, he gets up again and he says, I have to like excuse myself. Leaves the restaurant but this time he doesn't come back. He actually walks nearby to his mom's house. And I think at this point they lived in Jupiter, Florida, if I'm not mistaken, which I'm mm-hmm. not exactly sure where that is in proximity to where they lived before or where he grew Very up. Very close. Probably. So he walks to her home. She's like in the house, but upstairs she hears someone downstairs and she's like, what the hell? Comes downstairs, finds Austin in the kitchen. Sue, he is downing vegetable oil like chugging vegetable oil out of the bottle and there is parmesan cheese all over the counters that he has spread and he is shoveling it into his mouth oh god that's a really chilling image like that's somebody who's deeply deeply ill and needs to go to the hospital but again She's like furious with him because he's gotten it all over his clothes. And she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? And like grabs it out of his hand. And she's like, get upstairs, go change your shirt, get back in the car. I'm going to drive you back to the restaurant. Drive him back to the restaurant. Why? Like, I want to be empathetic towards this family because this is a tragedy for them as well. They've lost a son in it in a strange way, but... I just, the inaction is like really, really difficult for me to deal with from the outside because this is not ambiguous. You know what I mean? Like if your son is chugging, any person chugging vegetable oil, they're not well. They have to go to the hospital. Well, and also, I mean, this is, uh, how many more things can he do before we decide to call it? Like Exactly. How many more signs? That's the thing. It's like you have had so many opportunities where he has exhibited very point blank demonstrations of him having mental illness. Mm-hmm. You're just not doing anything. Or I guess they thought they were like, well, we're, we're enacting the Baker Act. Like that's happening in a couple of days. So maybe they just thought they could extend it another day or two and it wouldn't have been so bad. But it really was a day too late. So after this, he gets changed. He gets back in the car. She drives him to the restaurant. He comes in. And of course, like he left the, his whole family there, like his dad and sister and everything. So they're pissed off because they realized he had left the restaurant and the mother had called the dad and was like, Austin's here. He came home. He's in the kitchen, like making a mess and everything. 
So he comes back to the restaurant, sits down, all seen on camera, and his dad basically leans in. And from what the sister said, the dad goes, what is wrong with you? Again, still under the impression he's using. Austin grabs his dad by the collar and pins him against the booth and then just throws him down and lets him go. Because don't forget, he's a big kid, like six feet tall, 200 pounds, and he's Mm -hmm. a bodybuilder. He's been bodybuilding his whole freshman year. He leaves the restaurant, storms out. They don't know which direction he went. They've lost him. So then we get into the real meat of this story and where everything goes down. Before I do, I know we just took a pause, but I feel like I need one before I'm going to get into this because this is going to be heavy. Well, when you said meat of the story, I was like, don't, oh, Jesus, don't even, Jesus, don't. I know, I know. I'm not being trivial. I just, it, that's how Help I me. felt inside. I was like, oh my God, this is about to be bad. I, I'm it's, also trying to subside my anger right now and be empathetic because what in the world? How many times does somebody have to show you that you're extraordinarily close with, that you've known your whole life? show you really odd behavior well before you call it i know i know it's what is going to go down in the next like hour of this story like of what happened in the next hour of the timeline is truly one of the most disturbing things i have ever read through for true crime research so austin he leaves the restaurant he then flees Nobody exactly knows where he went. His parents lost him. What they immediately did was they called the police and they were like, okay, now we need to call 911 because he's unstable and he could be violent. He's out there somewhere. So they'd already phoned this in. They're like, he's walking around somewhere. You got to find him. So then we come up to this garage, right? There's this woman named Michelle um, Mishkan. She's 53 years old. She, sorry, 53 years old and basically she has like a it's kind of like a I would call it a Florida garage where like she keeps her garage open her and her husband they've decked it out they're like both retired at this point they've decked it out with like Christmas lights there are like lounge chairs in there a couch and like she just keeps it open on nice nights and she watches TV so she is just sitting in the garage when apparently someone comes up the driveway that someone would be Austin. Now, the way that we found out about this was because the neighbor, his name was Jeff. Let's see if I can get his last name, actually. He's pretty important to this story, but all you need to know is the neighbor's name is Jeff. He lives across the street. What he immediately hears through his window is the sound of a woman screaming. He knows his neighbor across the street very well, Michelle, and her husband, um, his name is John Stevens. He was actually out walking the dog at this point. So he's not home. Jeff hears the scream, runs outside. What he immediately sees is Michelle standing petrified inside her garage. And Austin is at the top of the driveway, just staring directly at her with his arms open, basically ready to attack. Then completely without prompt, he tackles her and just starts slamming her into the concrete of the driveway, like beating her horrifically this 53 year old woman so jeff of course sprints runs as fast as he can over to austin and tries to pull him off of michelle 
Austin gets up, turns around, and he goes, you don't want a part of this. Then goes back to beating this woman so violently, so incredibly hard. Jeff doesn't know what to do, so he just tries to pull him off again, grabs him with as much strength as he can. They kind of have a scuffle, and then he's basically able to get Austin down to the pavement off of Michelle. But he doesn't really know exactly what happened in that scuffle because his face is kind of throbbing and he feels like a really sharp sting on the right of his neck. In that scuffle, Jeff had been stabbed by Austin in five different points around his neck and face. Austin is carrying a knife. So at this point, Jeff realizes he was like, I don't even have a phone on me. I've just been stabbed. It could be fatal. Like I'm losing a lot of blood. So he's like, my only chance here is to actually call the police because I don't know what this kid is doing. So he runs through the garage into Michelle's home and thinks that he's going to like lure Austin away from hurting Michelle. So he's running into the home and slamming all these doors behind him to try to lock them. And he's going to run out the back door through their backyard and then basically around the house as a detour into his house to call 911. The whole time, he thinks Austin is chasing him. Austin is not. He is continuing to beat Michelle. So then Jeff gets inside and he's on the phone with 911. While he's on the phone with 911, this is when we think John then came home with the dog. The next part of the story is going to come from the testimony of the first responders, the officers who came to the scene. So we have these two cops that show up. They get to the end of the driveway and to paint the picture for you, there are two like very big vehicles in the driveway that are kind of blocking the immediate view of the garage. So they're not even sure what they're walking in on, but they like know this is a situation. This is an emergency. So they've, they've got their, gun, their guns drawn. So they start kind of going around the cars and pulling up. The first thing that they see is Michelle's body is like lifeless and kind of halfway in the garage. They then see a man who is laying in the driveway with his eyes open, blood everywhere, and he's sort of just like catatonic and shaking, sort of saying, help me, help me, help me. What they also saw was Austin laying on top of this man. That was John, the husband, 59 years old, retired business owner of um, a landscaping company. Austin was on top of John, and the officers are you know, shouting, get off of him, get off of him doesn't seem to respond, but he's doing something to John and they can't figure out what exactly he's doing because he's kind of like moving his arm and his hand around John. As they get closer, one of the officers goes around to the head. They get a closer look to what Austin is doing. Austin is repeatedly reaching inside of John's mouth, ripping out chunks of his inner cheek and (gasps) eating them. Oh my God. I know. So when they see that, they panic and they're like, oh my God, they they can't shoot him. They can't shoot him because he's literally laying on top of John's body. If they shoot him, they could kill John. So what they first do is they try to tase him. They say, we're tasing him. No effect. He has no feeling from the taser. He just continues to keep eating John's face. So then one of the officers who's at the front of him He just kicks Austin as hard as he can in the head. Austin gets kicked back, goes straight back in, gets kicked again, straight. Like he's kicking him square in the face, Stu. 
It's as if this kid has superhuman no strength. Pain. Like, yeah. they, no pain. Not even cognizant that there are people, there's like a threat around him. He is only fixated on eating this man. It's horrifying. So then finally, oh, sorry, there's a siren that's going around. So then finally, other officers, they arrive on the scene. These officers, they have a dog. So they start shouting. They're like, release the canine, release the dog, the dog. Dog comes over, chomps on Austin's arm, yanks his arm back. Austin rips his arm out of the dog's jaw, basically shreds through the muscle of his forearm, goes back to eating John. The dog chomps down again, pulls his arm back. Same thing, rips his arm. Like he's severely damaging his arm. We're talking like cutting through the muscle down to the bone. No effect, no perception of pain. So then finally the dog goes in for a third time, chomps on the arm, pulls him back. This gives the front officer just enough time and a good enough angle to give one big kick to his face. Literally knocks the kid's teeth out, kicks his face so hard he flies back. And then the other officer goes and cuffs one of his arms and tries to drag him away from John. Austin then turns to the officer and goes, kill me, kill me. I'm eating humans. Kill me. (gasps) It took three officers to basically subdue him in the pavement before they could get him away and restrained in a car. They then went back to the bodies. Michelle was dead. She was beaten to death, blunt force trauma. John would also die from his injuries because he had been eaten basically from the inside of his face out. Oh my God. But the saga was not over because immediately they start to notice that Austin is becoming unresponsive and he appears to be passing out. He is taken immediately to a hospital and they find out that he had ingested multiple different chemicals from inside the garage of Michelle. Something like, I think it was like a lawn chemical or something, like a weed killer. He basically chugged it. Yeah, I bet it was like Roundup or something. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. will kill you. No, his organs were shutting down was the thing, yeah. in addition to all of the injuries. In fact, I don't know if I should send you this picture. There are some pictures of him at the scene, like in the driveway. I mean, I have a really clear visual in my mind. So you're like, whatever I'm, you send You're like, me, I'm good. <laughs> I, no, no, no. Send it because I feel like I already can kind of see it in my mind. I don't think this will affect me too, too much at this point. Again, I'm still riding the Mary Vincent ride true, true. where I'm Hold ready. On. So this is, let's see. I'm going to first send you this picture because this was actually on the inside of their house, I believe, like Michelle and John's house. Let's see. So you'll just see some blood on the floor. Okay. But then I also have a picture from the driveway. Okay. That link is bringing me to an error message, which might be a sign. Oh, God. God. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what about this link I just sent? Okay. Okay. Let me see. Does it take anywhere? Okay. It says... Error, guru meditation. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, what? That is so weird. Hold on. Let me try this one. I'm like, do I need to clear cookies and cash? I don't know, baby. Uh, maybe gotta, this is a sign. It's like, don't show I her know. this. <laughs> don't show her this. It's our IT again. Uh, oh, my God. Okay, so this is him that I'm looking at in this photo. That's him literally in the driveway after he just did it. 
Oh my God, creepers. He's like, I guess he's, his eyes almost look like they're covered in blood or, or like he's got blood all over his body. Hold on. This is a better visual. Okay. This will, um, this is an up close of his face, literally taken in the driveway. It's insane. These pictures exist. <gasps> oh my God. Are his teeth like all busted out? Yeah. He was kicked in the face repeatedly. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, totally. Hold on. This is another one. How God's chilling is that, though? Kill me, kill me. I'm eating humans. Kill me. That's terrifying. Oh my God! Wait, describe what you're seeing. Just well, he's on the ground and his he's handcuffed, and his arms are completely covered in blood, blood all over his back, on his shorts. I mean, he. Th- this looks like. And maybe it's just because I know the word cannibal mm-hmm. is in the ether right now, but he looks animalistic to me here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is so chilling in the context of him saying for so long, did you know that I'm I'm half horse? I'm half dog. What in God's He thinks name? he's an animal. Yeah. So maybe I should keep going a little bit. Austin, he's taken to the hospital. His organs are shutting down because he basically ingested toxic chemicals from inside the garage or inside the home. The two people that he attacked are dead. Jeff, the neighbor, would end up surviving the attack. And of course, he gives testimony. The dog also survived, just throwing that in there. But he goes into a coma, actually, because it's it's so severe, like the damage to his organs. But he's in the coma for 11 days, would make a full physical recovery, surprisingly, by the time he wakes up. He has no memory of what he did. Allegedly. Now, this became a horrific point of contention in the case. Was Austin lucid and aware of what he was doing? Or was he in a psychotic episode? I can't really imagine that he wasn't. But basically, this would become a like a big like pivot point in court because the family of the victims, their children, um, absolutely devastated. I mean, it's, it's a horrific, horrific event. They sought the death penalty, but you can't seek the death penalty necessarily for someone who is not fit to stand trial, you know, Mm -hmm. deemed insane. So then that became the big question. Can we say for sure that Austin is insane if he has these moments where he's lucid and then these moments where he's not, he ate these people. So what they first do is they do the talk screen, like I said, because this was a time, I think 2015, where like angel dust was going around, same with um, bath salts. There had been other incidents of people who were having violent outbursts, even incidents where they were eating other people from taking these drugs. So they initially suspected he must have been on something. To their devastation, he was not. All they found in his talk screen was a little bit of THC. But again, it was so minimal, they actually believed, like I said, He was sober at the time of the attack. They would end up bringing in a doctor who would evaluate Austin extensively to determine whether or not he believed he was insane. His name was Dr. Resnick. Dr. Resnick ended up publishing a 38-page report on Austin where he concluded that he believed Austin was deep inside a psychotic episode. And the reason being that he believed this was because Austin was not aware of his surroundings or any eminent threats that were around him. 
He was unresponsive to his innate survival instincts, such as avoiding the gun, reacting or avoiding the taser, the kicks to the face, the dog biting his arm, nearly tearing it off. None of this was effective at garnering a response from him. All he was fixated on was consuming this person. This doctor believed that that was sufficient evidence to support that Austin was clinically insane and was not fit to stand trial. And he would not. Ultimately, Austin was put into a facility where he was given treatment um, to stabilize him, of course, to recover from any of his physical injuries. Like I said, he does make a full physical recovery. And he would actually end up speaking um, on television, talking about what he did once he was stable under medication. And he breaks down, actually. I can send you a picture of um, a clip from this interview as well, but he basically breaks down just profusely apologizing for the lives that he's ruined, for the things that he's done that he doesn't remember. He said all that he remembered of that night was that while he was at the restaurant and he walked outside, he saw two dark demonic figures with white faces at a distance that were watching him. Mm. And he knew they were following him. So when he left the restaurant, what he did was he walked four miles from that restaurant where he eventually arrived at the open garage of Michelle. He then approached her in the garage because he was going to ask her if she could help him fight the demons. But of course, she was terrified of him because he was walking around with a knife. He then suspected that she was a witch. So he ran up to her and started beating her to death. Then he remembered a dark figure with a dog that stood in the way of the garage, which we can assume was John, her husband. And then after that, everything went blank. He remembered nothing. As of today, um, there are reports that have come out that have said Austin has been stable for a very, very long time. And I do believe he can remain stable, but he will most likely never be released from confinement given the circumstances of what he did. Good God. Doesn't that just make you, first of all, it makes you so uneasy to think that the mind can play tricks on you like that. And second of all, I just wonder what the buildup was for him to be under such duress and such stress that his brain decided to do that. Like, I, do you ever think about that, that I know that a lot of psychotic breaks, it's like the buildup of stress, 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 which I guess is like for a young man his age, maybe it's just going to school. It's the priceless Pisa thing where it's like you're out of your normal structured environment and schedule. But yeah. like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's so sad to think that like that that can be prevented by people holding you accountable or at least you can mitigate some of it so it doesn't get to that level of insanity. Well, when you can admit what's plainly in front of your face. I mean, whether it was a a situation where his family believed that he was truly mentally ill or they believed that he had a drug problem, in either scenario, intervention was necessary because he seemed unstable. He seemed dangerous. The intervention just came too late. It was too delayed. Mm -hmm. And there was too much pacifying of the situation, too much sweep it under the rug, deal with it at the end of the summer, deal with it in a couple of days. Let's go to our dinner. Let's go do this. Let's hang out. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's blame on the side of the parents with this as well. And like I said, I want to be empathetic to it, but 
it's incredibly difficult for me to look at this objectively and not point the finger at the people who were around him who are supposed to be protecting him, his mm-hmm. family. And what's really interesting, and I wanted to bring this up about Dr. Resnick's report, that 30-age pate report, um, he mentioned clinical lycanthropy. Now, I had looked up clinical lycanthropy when I covered the South End werewolf case like a year ago. Clinical lycanthropy, if I can get you like the official definition. Now I am going to read something. That was no reading, no notes. So now I'm going to look at some notes. But clinical and, lycanthropy. Hold on, let's pause for a damn second. <laughs> how did? How in the world did you do that off the top of your head? Baby. Um, if I didn't have this damn travel mic in my hand round of a freaking applause i'm giving you like a golf clap right now (laughs) i appreciate it i do i do but i'm telling you like true crime studying these cases it really has improved my memory i i I just yeah i don't know i just remembered it it's also i did it like a day ago so it's kind of fresh like i don't know if i'd be able to do that for like some of our older cases actually i bet i could do asia degree instantly i bet i could do that one like oh my god i could do it like i studied it yesterday for sure I feel like I could probably do like Jean Bonnet like yesterday. I'm telling you, like, one, if you're like in the weeds with that research, it re- like the little details really do stick with you. Mm-hmm. But I want to read you this definition for clinical lycanthropy. I think you'll find this really fascinating. So, clinical lycanthropy, it is a rare psychiatric syndrome. And I know that this is often referred to as werewolf syndrome. It is not widely understood and it is so rare, so, so rare. There are only a handful of instances that are recorded in history. It involves the delusion that the affected person can transform into or is transformed into an animal, most likely a dog or a wolf. So this has been around for a very long time, this phenomenon of a human that suddenly transforms or becomes this like in, this like animal or goes into like an animal-like state and they have no memory of it and they have like a hunger for other humans or flesh. And it kind of blended this world of like, is this mythology or is this science? Clinical lycanthropy is a very real thing in the medical world. It's just so rare that it's not widely understood in the world of psychiatric medicine. Isn't that fascinating? That's real. So how many, I don't know if you can see from what you're looking at, but like how many cases a year do people ever or get like diagnosed with this. Oh, when I'm talking about rare, I'm talking about like maybe like 10 cases in history where it, there people are like, let's see results. There are, okay, 43 cases of clinical lycanthropy or delusion of dog transformation that have been identified in history. This is often associated with other forms of schizophrenia, psychotic depression, bipolar disorder, and other psychotic disorders. And of course, I will say, I will preface, I am not a mental health professional, neither is Stu, contrary to our well-spoken delivery, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just reading this verbatim, that this is a very real definition in the medical world, clinical lycanthropy. That is so, do you know when the first case was? I mean, some of these go back as far as like, I think this is where like werewolf lore comes from, because yeah. we're talking about like. I'm looking at this one right here, 1589, 1573, 1044. Like these go back far. That is really fascinating. Because I was going to say, I wonder like if werewolf lore informed clinical lycanthropy, like if it was that people had heard stories of werewolves. And that's what planted the seed. 
Yeah, yeah. Shockingly, I think it was the other way around. Yeah, Yeah. I think it was the other way around, which is terrifying. Wow. It's. I mean, it reminded me a lot of so much of the South End Werewolf, which was like kind of a similar thing, but it was from the first person testimony of the guy where like he remembered from like, I, I covered this with Jack. I think it's a premium episode. He remembered from like a very young age being in his backyard and he was like maybe like seven or eight and there was like a wind that just came over him, like a wind in the air and instantly something changed inside of him and he started like gnawing at like chicken wire in his yard like it was like instantaneous like he just became rapid that is so weird and it carried on through adulthood like he had an instance where his friend was driving him home from a bar and he just felt like something come over him and like his fingers curled and his veins bulged and he literally chomped down on his friend's thigh in the driver's seat this might sound really dumb, but I wonder if any of the like hormones from like the bodybuilding and like taking any supplements, I don't know, but I wonder if like that could have been certainly I think the whole thing was triggered by the buildup of the, you know, mental illness then taking something like a poison like Roundup or whatever that he mm-hmm. ingested. But I do kind of wonder if there's that element of your hormones kind of raging that it triggers something else. You just wait until we get sued by bodybuilding.com. Stop. Like they're gonna they're gonna see us in court, have their day in court where they're gonna say, these two think that some roid rage equates to cannibalism. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm talking about like just chemical. Like Something he definitely had a chemical imbalance. I'd be very yeah. curious to like, I don't even know if there's a way to determine that, but I'd be very curious to see like what was going on in his brain imbalance wise that could lead him one into a psychotic state. But it's one thing to be in a psychotic state, but even people who are usually in a psychotic state, I do not think they usually have the impulse to eat other people. That is so specific, right. Right. so incredibly specific. And what, chilled me to the bone stew was that one moment where he was lucid as they're dragging him away in the driveway and he goes kill me kill me i'm eating humans that is so scary well that's that's the mind it like pops back in at the weirdest times and, i feel and like it knows it knows something's like in, intensely yeah. wrong like it oh that just absolutely killed me i feel i feel terribly for everyone in this story. Of course, I mean, what happened to Michelle and John was absolutely horrific and I feel for their family and their children and I can absolutely understand the resentment they hold towards um, the Hara family. In, in a strange way, I do feel for Austin because it seemed like he was struggling for a while and it was very outward and those needs weren't met. And I also, yeah. in an odd way, feel for his family too because they really have lost a son they've lost like a promise of a light what was to be a life you know sure. he'll spend the and rest of his days in a hospital and i'm sure they live with the guilt of like why didn't we do something sooner we should have you know because you want to believe your own child is not capable of such evil oh, i don't think they could have ever imagined yeah. that he was that this would happen i mean no 
it must have been difficult for them to even concede that he could have been unstable enough to be dangerous, let alone be cannibalistic. I, I don't want to say, I don't want to make it trivial to say that it's a cautionary tale because I don't think that's what it is, but I do just want to say, and I'm sure you would agree with me that it is an example that if there is someone in your life or someone you're adjacent to who is exhibiting some very clear signs that they're struggling with their mental health, not necessarily that it could turn into something as grotesque and tragic as this, but one thing can lead to a bad thing very quickly mm-hmm. if people pacify situations. So I would encourage everybody who's listening to always advocate for people when they can't advocate for themselves to get people in front of professionals who can actually talk to them, can actually diagnose them and can figure out if they're okay or not. And also just to ask if people are okay. Like, I feel mm. like that's step one sometimes is that as humans, we try to, you know, protect each other's privacy and be respectful. But if there is somebody that's close to you in your life that you know something is off, like just just to ask. So even if they don't want to go there, you've given them an opportunity to not internalize so much. Yes. Just give them, it gives them an outlet, which I think the mind, it helps a struggling mind because they know to do something with their their pain. Mm-hmm. They say, there's, there's a way out. I just have to, I just have to grip onto the hand that's reaching out to me kind of thing. Right. I'm so sorry. My throat, give me a second. <coughs> My God. I told Stu, Stu was like, when I told her I was sick, when I was coming on, she was like, do you know what, like, what exactly is wrong with you? And I was like, at this point, it could be cancer. No. <laughs> Not actually, but like. Don't you even say that. <sighs> <sighs> I'm in my 20s still, baby. It's fine. But. Don't rub I, it in. <laughs> <laughs> my cough is just. Hold on. Oh, Sorry, my, a- my Apple Watch just like sent me something. I'm all over the place. I think this is a good time to wrap, honey, because I'm at yeah. that store. But um, thank you for sitting through this one. I know giving you two really, really heavy ones back to back is not fair. So I promise I'll, no, I'll, I I'll find a ghost it. story next time. You've prompted me. My ass is underground. Did you have any idea it was going to go that far? I mean, of course, you knew it was the frat boy cannibal. So that kind of like tells a story in and of itself. But did you have any idea it was going to take those turns? No. Oh, my God. Especially, I'm sorry, that this might sound just so weird that I'm latching yeah. onto this image, but the being in the kitchen with the cheese everywhere and the oh, oil, like, that, that is so weird to me. It's so specific, too. Like, you couldn't even, like, like write that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that, is, yeah. that is so specifically born of the mind of somebody who is on a different plane of reality. Chugging vegetable oil. Oh, God. It's just, it's horrifying, actually. So scary. Whew. Like I said, next time, a ghost story, perhaps, or an episode of After Dark, Creep Time After Dark. There we <laughs> go. We can just like relax a little bit, <laughs> chill out. But I want to say thank you again for listening, even through this wretched, wretched voice that I'm sporting these days. Thank you to the Creepers for listening as well. We are going to catch you guys next week with another episode of Creep Time, the podcast because we love you so much. But for now, we will say goodbye. And good luck, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye, creepers.